as he heads uh, to his next call. Well, I want to start, uh, and I know we're getting hungry, so I hope you'll bear with me. I want to take some time and just throw some vision out there for you for next year, and I'll shorten this tremendously from what I was thinking. But first, I want to just piggyback on everybody else and thank the entire staff, all of them, for all their hard work and, de- and dedication and commitment to, to me and to this church. Every single person from our salaried all the way down to our hourly employees. I'm so thankful for them. I want to thank our vestry, our outgoing vestry members, and, and our ones coming on board, the ones who said yes. Uh, thank you for that and for your leadership. So what I want to talk to you a little bit about is who we are at St. Luke's and what I've observed over the last uh, several months. One of those things I want to draw our attention to is back to this passage in John. As you probably noticed in our Bible study, for those who were here in worship That was part of the passage we read in the gospel and then the continuation of it if we had kept going and the gospel story didn't end with two examples of this idea of come and see and this idea of forming disciples. And I think in my heart that is what St. Luke's has been about and continues to be about is how we form disciples, how we raise people up in the faith. One of the stories I think I've shared with you and I haven't, I'm going to give you the quick summary of it, is that I call it the parable of the lighthouse. It's one of my old Uncle Bubba's go-to stories about a lighthouse uh, on, the, on the coast. And this lighthouse was built, and it was, it was a dilapidated old lighthouse, but when the bell went off and ships hit the rocks, they would send rescue boats out to save the sailors who were stranded on the rocks. And over time, the sailors' families would come and thank the lighthouse for their hard work, and they would donate money, and the lighthouse was fixed up and became something bigger, and all of a sudden it started hosting Gale, and it lost its identity of saving people, and the people who were leading the lighthouse just wanted to have dinners and, and functions just for those that were a part of the lighthouse society. So those who wanted to go out and rescue moved down the coast and formed a new lighthouse, and they got into the rescue business. Next thing you know, families come and thank them, and they build new buildings, and they build their own lighthouse society, and then the next group goes down, and, and all of a sudden you see all these lighthouses down the coast. Purpose and function are so important as to what we do. We as a church have to ask ourselves in our core, do we exist to invite people to come and see, or do we exist strictly to those who manage to fumble into our our pews today? While we've been gathering in here, you probably didn't know since your backs are to the door, but five families have come in that door thinking they were coming to an 1115 service. Five families of which I knew none of them, and I don't think any of us here knew them. All visitors just came into our doors just in the last hour. So inviting people and being the church is so, so important. And as I think about John, and I think about the gift of what the gospel of John reminds us of, it's simple. We share our testimony. We invite people to come and see. We grow into something bigger than ourselves. We move beyond ourselves into that larger conversation. In your Holy Cow survey, which I just saw uh, about a month ago, which might blow your minds considering you filled it out uh, probably a year or more ago, you feel, and it was probably the most fun thing you've ever done um, is fill out the Holy Cow survey. Do you all remember the 100 questions you had to answer? Oh, yeah. Let me tell you something, though. You should pat yourselves on the back. You had 235 responses. I may be off by 10 there. And your average Sunday attendance is right around 270. So what, talk about a representation. There were two things that well, two things that I'm going to talk about. There were a lot of things that were highlighted in that survey, some of which we just talked about, and Barbara talked about that idea of being welcoming, that you are slightly what they call a home and hearth church, which means we have to just reorient our minds that we're very friendly, but we also have to reorient bringing people in. But the two things I want to talk about that were high-priority items that everybody answered 
which is developing uh, who we are, what our spiritual gifts are, discerning those and going out and serving. And the second was, was forming meaningful relationships with each other, which really to me screamed some type of small group activity. You wanted to really get to know who's in your community. And to me, that's the most beautiful way that we can do and be church is to break a church down into smaller parts and allow people to have an opportunity to get in there and get to know somebody, get to really meet somebody. Talk about a wonderful tool Barbara and I would have when those five families came in for us to look at them and say, here's a small group that meets in your neighborhood. Here's a group of people we want to put you with. And for me to pick up the phone and call that, call that group and say, these people are coming. Can you give them a call and invite them to your group? Can they come take part in your fellowship? And they might be people who are different than you. They might think differently than you. They might look differently than you. But I know that St. Luke's will embrace them and be open to what they bring to the table. Talk about a powerful way to bring community together. Now, all of this goes under the umbrella for me of your, I've been calling it, you call it a mission statement. I've been calling it a vision statement strictly because of its broadness uh, to be a community in Christ and Christ to the world. And I've been asking myself for the last seven months, what does that look like? What does it mean to be a community in Christ and then Christ to the world? So I broke it down into something slightly different, or I added a process on top of this statement, where I said, I think maybe at St. Luke's, in order to be that, to be a community in Christ and Christ to the world, that we must restore people to unity with God, deepen their faith, discover their purpose, and make a difference in the name of Jesus Christ the four pillars, if you will, of what we do in church. We deepen people's relationships and worship. We come together and we worship. We serve from that place of worship. And then we come and we form. We form ourselves in classes. We study the Bible. We, we go deeper in the faith so that we can become deeper in our faith and have the ability to be a place where God can happen for somebody else. You've heard me preach that already till I'm blue in the face. And as long as I'm here, you'll probably hear me say it over and over again. Be a place where God can happen for somebody else. Don't preach to them. Be God to them. That's different. We all are post-enlightenment people. We all suffer from the enlightenment. I say suffer because I'm not a big fan of the enlightenment. There's two sides of the enlightenment, just so you know. Here's a little education for you that we'll talk about in formation. You have the radical, what we, these are what we would call liberals and conservatives, so we'll just boil it down that way. On the liberal side, you have people who wonder and make God out to be this really cosmic entity that's far, far away and kind of really question a lot of different things. And on the other side, you have what a lot of people call extreme fundamentalism, where we throw tradition out, we throw the history of the church out, and we strictly look at Bible. And if we don't understand a passage in Bible, if we ask too many questions, then we walk away from it. And those are the two sides of what's formed Christianity since the 1700s. And we all are products of that. And we all think in some form on that spectrum. And what I want to do and imagine us doing at St. Luke's is find the middle in that. That was the other thing your Holy Cow survey highlighted. You're a very middle-of-the-road congregation in terms of, the, of that spectrum which may surprise some of you and maybe not surprise others of you. And, and they ask you those questions to, to garner that response. Uh, and they're pretty, pretty sneaky about it uh, in the Holy Cow community of how they do that to get you to, to answer questions in a particular way. And what I'm hoping we can do is we invite people in is, is create an opportunity for them to go deeper, to really push themselves, to really imagine what God might be inviting them to consider and in that if no matter where you fall on that spectrum, that you leave with a deeper sense of who you are and what you know versus just being a talking head for somebody else. But really knowing what scripture says in your particular camp 
what tradition says about Scripture. What's the conversation between the history of the church and Scripture? What does St. Athanasius tell us about the incarnation? What does St. Gregory of Nyssa tell us about the life of Moses? These are places I want us to go. And we'll do it in, in theological ways, and we'll do it in very tangible uh, or very academic ways and in very tangible ways. Now, obviously, with Andrew stepping out, some of this is going to change a little bit because Andrew brought a, a gift to, to me uh, with that Ph.D., but that's not the end of that conversation. We're going to figure that out. We want to be a place that teaches people, and this is my big mantra, that we continue to be a place. This is what you already are. Continue to be a place where people learn to love each other in their disagreements, where we learn to move forward. I think when we all hopefully get to the pearly gates one day, I, I think God's going to look at all of us, and I really think this about my ministry. So in February, February 22nd, I'll celebrate 10 years of ordained ministry in God's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That may surprise you, but 10 years in, I'm pretty sure that if I make it, it by the grace of God to the pearly gates, that I want to be able to look God in the eye and not say I kept people out, but be able to say I showed people Jesus to the best of my ability was a place where people found Jesus. And to me, that is the most important work that we do that is paramount and highlighted in the gospels through and through and in the history of the church of how we bring people around and teach them and expose them to the word. So really what we're facing as a world and within Christianity and our communities is no different than it was in the first century. It's no different in the second century. It's no different in the third century. It's no different than it was in the 17th century. Christianity has always been one religion as part of many others. And we've always had to find our voice and our way. And that's always been the hard part. We've always been our worst, our own worst enemies because what's the one thing we don't like? You can say it out loud. Say it loud and proud. Change. We don't like change, and oftentimes we fall into the trap of what we call the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over, expecting different results. And you can look at the history of the church and see at different moments before great change happened where we spent time spinning our wheels doing the same thing and pretending we could get different results. And some of us may remember or heard, I remember when I was a child, and this is crazy, this was in the, in the early 90s in our church, I'm a cradle Episcopalian. There were some folks in the church uh, that were a little bit older than I was. And I remember this. I remember listening to my parents engaging in this conversation, saying, if it was only like the 1940s, everything would be all right. And then fast forward, I can remember my first parish where, gosh, if it was only 1987, it would all be perfect. Everybody would be coming to church. All those families would drop this soccer on Sunday. And then I can remember even today, here and at places I've served recently, if it was just like it was in the old days, we'd be all right. And the funny reality, the ironic reality is it is like it was in the old days. It is absolutely no different than it was yesterday. The mission field still exists. The work of the gospel still exists. And that we are called into that great place uh, of figuring that out. Now, to that point, I did an experiment in, in Advent. And I took a reading out. Took a reading out. I haven't shared the feedback I got. So I heard from about 67 people. I was trying to go count the emails and the phone calls. I think it was 67, 65 or 67 people. 40 people saw merit in it being removed. 27 people, well, 25 people did not like it. 
and two people gave me the most awesome theological debate on both sides of it that I've ever seen. It was the perfect meal. I mean, it was beautiful. And I mean that in the most positive. I, I, and everybody was so thoughtful. No one, no one at St. Luke's came up to me and said, I don't like this. Or I like this. It was always qualified with some very profound, thoughtful response that really blew my mind. Because I was kind of expecting, it's why it's an experiment. I was expecting people to say, if you don't bring that back, I'm leaving St. Luke's. And for me, having to imagine what I would say back to that. But that didn't happen. People gave me thoughtful responses. The reason I did that experiment is, as we think about our mission field and our world in which we live, because I want to be very clear, the church and culture have always existed together. This idea that's going around right now that culture is attacking the church, folks, it's no different than it was in the second century. It's no different than it was when Peter, James, and, and Paul were all trying to figure out if the Gentiles were going to be included or not. Culture has always been alongside the church. Our mission field has always been culture. If we pretend that we don't have a mission field and that culture doesn't exist, we kind of fall short of being a place to invite people to come and see. So if we keep that in mind, part of what I'm trying to imagine as a church is what ears. We can get up and say lots of things. You've all been to a sporting event, I'm sure, where you have the person who holds the big placard up and says, if you don't do this, you're going to the bad place. And how many people bow down right then and there in the middle of that traffic jam and freak out? Nobody. Maybe one person. And it's not that their message is bad. It's that the ears aren't hearing it. The ears aren't there to hear it. But we have to imagine, and what I was doing with worship was imagining how we could reach a demographic of people who will give us an hour of their time. But doing it in a thoughtful way that would allow me to let us theologically focus on the theme for the day to focus on a theme in the readings versus just reading readings because we feel that's what we should always do because we've always done it that way, but to really to imagine thematically how we could shorten the service but do it in a very intentional way that maybe opens the door for for spiritual growth and focus and development. That's a tough question. It's something we'll pick up in 2020. I'm I'm not throwing out the reading right now, but we have to imagine when people come into worship and young families who are looking for a service that has a little bit more of a family orientation, we don't have that at St. Luke's right now. We don't have that service just yet. And one of the components of that service is time. And we have to think about time. And you all have been very bold about reaching out to the young people and saying you want to do that. That was obviously two of the top things on your whole holy cow survey. We call them anxiety markers. Attract, do whatever we need to do to attract youth and young families and then grow younger. Those are essentially your two top choices, but every church has those. Every single church that's searching for a rector right now, if you go read their profile, that's the top two things they're looking for. We call those anxiety markers. We call that as a response. Every church looks out and they think, holy smokes, we must do something for the next generation. So let's do that. And the reality is the answer doesn't lie in the priest, it lies in the community gathered. It lies in our ability to adapt and change. So I want us to encourage, I want to encourage us to have that conversation and we'll do it in a very thoughtful way this year, probably come in the summertime to really imagine how our worship can look a little different and be more engaging across different styles to be a place again that gives people an avenue to restore their unity with God. What better place to do it than in worship to really meet and and grow. And then I want us to imagine how we can again form those small groups. So in Lent, We're going to break you off. We're going to invite you to sign up. 
just sign up. We're not going to tell you where you're going. You're not going to know anything. You're just going to sign up and answer some questions. And then a group of us are going to break all that, all those folks who sign up into small groups to come and see, to come and be. We're going to cross lines. We're going to cross boundaries. We're going to cross friendships. We're going to try to mix people up. And that's going to be our Lenten program. We're not going to have some theologian come in and talk. We're not going to have a professor come in and talk to us. We're going to be with each other. We're going to do that for the four, four or five weeks in Lent. We're figuring that out. And so more details will come out soon. Four or five weeks, we want to encourage you to come and deepen your relationships with each other. And think about how we can move forward in that way. Because that's the key. That's going to be the key. And what I tend to do with the vestry is really formalize a process. There are so many newcomers who come to our church and ask me, what's your process for getting engaged in the life of the church? Well, of course, as an Episcopalian, what do you think I say? Oh, you can get baptized. You can get confirmed. You used to see the eyes glaze over when you say confirmed. Like, what's that? And if you think about it, our Episcopal speak, as beautiful and as important as I think it is, sometimes loses people. The reality of the world is more people have never attended church who come in these doors of this church since I've been here than have ever attended church. So they don't know things like liturgy. They call it worship. They might just call it a church service. They don't know confirmation. They don't even know what baptism is. And if you use the word Eucharist, you, you lost them there. I'm not even sure Episcopalians know what the Eucharist is sometimes. If I'm being honest, I'm not sure there's many Christians. I'm not even sure Andrew and I have it all figured out what the Eucharist is. So we have to find ways to bridge those gaps and be honest about who's in our mission field and how we do it. And last but certainly not least, from our worship, from our community, from our strengthening of bonds, we go out and we serve. You are an incredibly generous community. It is a testament to who you are. The one thing I'm hoping we can do, and I'm working with the folks in the missions committee to do this, is create opportunities for you to serve with your hands and feet. Serving and actually seeing the person where your money affects or your treasure affects can have a lasting impact on who you are. Every single one of you in this room clap for the mission trips. I think every single one in this room, including myself, need to go on a mission trip. And by that, I mean we need to leave these doors and go serve somebody right here in Austin, Texas. It's when you look that person in the eye and realize you have something to gain from them just as much as they from you, that's where God happens in that place. So we're going to work really hard this spring to invigorate and create opportunities that you can go out and serve with your time and talent. I am not, I want to be very clear, I am not dismissing the check writing. I am not dismissing the check writing. I am hoping that we can do this in addition to that. Truly see those folks that you're impacting so that you can stand up just like Katie did a minute ago and talk about the person who received your gift, who received God in you. There's power in that. And that's what we do. So you see, if we can live into some of these things and deepen some of these things, the mission becomes the process and the process the mission. Or said another way, the process is the program and the program is the process. So we become all about making disciples, all about making people fall in love with God, serve God, and deepen their faith in God and each other. And if we can do those three things, then we are the church. We are the church that was started at Pentecost. We become the very thing God calls us to be. So I am super excited about the future of St. Luke's and excited to be a part of this and truly thankful to have been called here. And as one of my wardens told me about their priests in Shreveport, and I'll leave you with this beautiful image. 
as we close. May God forgive what we were and sanctify what we will be. Amen. Let's go eat.